to own other human beings as slaves. It was about culture, and the culture was white supremacy. That's Jeffrey Robinson, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Jeffrey Robinson on the South, Slavery, and the Lost Cause. The Lost Cause is rooted in the South's search for justification and the need to find a substitute for victory in the Civil War. In attempting to deal with defeat, the South created an image of the war as a noble epic fought by brave men. The war, the mythology goes, wasn't about preserving slavery. It was about Southern values. Monuments to Confederate soldiers and the naming of military bases not only glorifies militarism, but are everyday reminders of white supremacy and the subordination of slaves. Slavery, free labor for centuries, created huge wealth for the plantation master class. To heal and repair, we need an honest accounting of history. Some monuments have come down, and military bases may be renamed. We can't continue to mythologize the past. Our guest today is Jeffrey Robinson. He's deputy legal director and the director of the ACLU Trone Center for Justice and Equality. He spoke in Seattle in 2017. Given recent events, we felt it was important to broadcast his presentation. And now, Jeffrey Robinson. I got uh, a couple of days ago an email from a gentleman who uh, sent me an article about the Robert E. Lee family because Robert E. Lee's descendants are still alive and in Virginia. And he said, I know you're going to give this talk, and I hope you will have in your mind and in your heart empathy, not sympathy, but empathy for his family today. And I want to say, could I just see a show of hands in this room? How many people in this room have ever owned a slave? I see no hands. Robert E. Lee's family, the people that exist today, they never owned slaves either. Slavery is not our fault. We have no responsibility for it. It is part of our shared history. And that's what we can't walk away from. And one of the things that this gentleman sent me was a Washington Post article where one of Robert E. Lee's descendants was saying, we were always taught that our ancestor didn't fight to protect slavery, he fought for Virginia. And what I want to do is just to read you the end of some comments from someone much more eloquent than me on this subject, W.E.B. Du Bois, written in 1928, on this topic, what was the Civil War fought about? And when people say, we were taught that he didn't fight, he wasn't fighting for slavery, he was fighting for the South. It is the punishment of the South that its Robert Lees and Jefferson Davises will always be tall, handsome, and well-born. Their courage will be physical, not moral. Their leadership will be weak compliance with public opinion and never costly and unswerving revolt for justice and right. 
it is ridiculous to excuse Robert Lee as the most formidable agency this nation ever raised to make four million human beings chattel instead of men and women. Either he knew what slavery meant when he helped maim and murder thousands in its defense, or he did not. If he did not, he was a fool. If he did, Robert E. Lee was a traitor and a rebel, not a hero. I feel for the family of Robert E. Lee that's alive today, because this must be a really difficult time for them. This is the price you pay when you live a lie when your view and understanding of history is based on a lie. Because when the truth comes to town, it really hurts when you're ripping that lie off. Everybody remembers the Edmund Pettus Bridge and Bloody Sunday. Heck, they made a movie about it. But who was Edmund Pettus? The grand of the Alabama KKK. And that bridge was dedicated, not in 1865 or 1870, but in 1940. And we'll come to that timing as we go through this, because the timing of these monuments, I think, suggests something that's very important in terms of understanding what they're about. People here who have been to Stone Mountain, Georgia, so there are some people, and I'm glad to see that, but I'm betting you don't know the entire story of Stone Mountain, Georgia. Because on Thanksgiving Eve in 1915, William Joseph Simmons took these things to Stone Mountain, Georgia. He took bricks where he made an altar. He took the American flag. He took the Holy Bible. He took an unsheathed sword. And he made himself the new imperial wizard of the KKK. That's what Stone Mountain, Georgia is. It is a monument to the KKK. Now, its history is interesting. It is the largest bas relief in the world. Jefferson Davis, Robert E. Lee, and Thomas Stonewall Jackson, conceived in 1912 by the United Daughters of the Confederacy, deeded to the United Daughters in 1916. They started working on it with the KKK in 1922, but it was abandoned for 36 years until the state of Georgia purchased it and created the Stone Mountain Memorial Association to complete the project, and it was completed in 1972. I got a call from a Washington Post reporter several weeks ago, and he said, I want to talk to you about these monuments that have been in the news a little bit recently, and I'm having some confusion. Uh, first of all, did you know that there was a Confederate monument in Arlington National Cemetery? And I told him, no, I had no idea. And he said, well, it's not on, like, if you take the tour there, they don't really take you by it. They kind of point at it and say, yeah, and over there there's a Confederate monument, and they kind of push you on by. But he said, I have some questions about it, and have you ever seen it? I told him, I haven't been there. I had no idea it was there. And he says, well, I'm trying to figure out what is a mammy. 
and I asked him to repeat his words. I said, what did you say? And he said, I'm trying to figure out what is a mammy. And I said, well, I can tell you what a mammy is. And I said, you're going to see a black woman with a handkerchief around her head holding on to one or two white kids. And he's like, hold it, hold it, hold it. I thought you hadn't been to the monument. <laughs> and I said, no, I haven't. I just grew up in America. I grew up black in America. I grew up in the South in America. And I know exactly what a mammy is. This is from the website of the Arlington National Cemetery. The vignettes include a slave following his young master, an officer kissing his infant child in the arms of her mammy. This is definitely a monument to history. But monuments are built to honor history. I am not honored by this. And neither is any other black person in America. That's in Arlington National Cemetery. Bill O'Reilly says on national television, yeah, the slaves built the White House. They had nice places to live and decent food. The state of Texas is teaching that slavery was a side issue to the Civil War. Our history is being stolen from us. This kind of rewriting of history matters because if slavery wasn't that bad, then what the hell are you still complaining about it for? Why don't you black people just move on? Why can't you get over it? This is where the South won the Civil War. They didn't win the war, they won the peace by rewriting what our history is truly about. And so, I want to take you through some of that history. And I hope that, you know, I'm, I am not standing here like, ha, ah, let me tell you this stuff and you don't know it and I'm smarter than you. I'm 61 years old. I was born and raised in Memphis, Tennessee. And much of the stuff I am sharing with you, I have learned in the last six or seven years. There is stuff in this presentation I have learned in the last 36 hours. We are not taught our history. And that's one of the things that I think is so critical and important. And it's important because as we're trying to interpret what was going on and what our true history is, all we have to do is go and look. Our history is hidden, but it's hidden in plain sight. And all we have to do is be willing to wake up and smell the coffee. So let's talk about it. In 1619, there were 20 human beings that were brought to America as slaves. 20. And it all started from that. Because what people figured out very quickly is, if you have free labor, the profits that you can make go up exponentially. The first slave ship is built in Massachusetts, not in the South. So this whole thing about, well, it was the bad South and the good North when it came to slavery. No, no, no. America went in all hands on deck. And I'm asking you to look at these laws because these laws will help you understand what slavery was about. We know the white slave owners will be raping the black women. But their kids are not going to be free. Let's make that clear right here and right now. 
We're going to steal their God from them, but even if they accept our God, they're still slaves. When you look at that one, and I think about policing in America today, it sends chills up and down my spine. And look at what you can get executed for. Growing your own food, learning to read, and assembling in groups. I remember talking to my great-grandmother, who was born to parents that were slaves. And I remember her saying, we had to be very careful to show, not to show how smart we really were. Because a smart black person was a threat. So, can I see a show of hands? How many people in here know about the colonial marines? I see about four hands go up. And I'm not suggesting, I'm not trying to embarrass anybody. I'm trying to make the point that our history has been stolen from us. The colonial marines were black slaves that fought with the British in the War of 1812. And do you know why they fought for the British? Because the British told them, if we win, you get your freedom. And when people are fighting for their freedom, they can be vicious. And the colonial marines were vicious. They knew all the back trails because they had been slaves in the South. They knew where you could cross the rivers. And so they were of great assistance to the British in fighting the Americans. And they were part of the troop that drove the Americans back into Washington, D.C. and set the White House on fire. About three months later, Francis Scott Key, who was part of that American group that got driven back to Washington, D.C., is now in Baltimore at Fort McHenry, and he's watching the bombs bursting in air and getting uh, excited and getting motivated to write the national anthem. And one of the things that Francis Scott Key wrote about was, you know, these black colonial marines, they're of concern because what if all of them did that? So here is the end of the third verse of our national anthem written by Francis Scott Key. And no refuge could save the hireling and slave from the terror of flight and the gloom of the grave and the star-spangled banner in triumph doth wave or the land of the free and the home of the brave. That is your national anthem. Our national anthem. And my point is that from Plymouth Rock, white supremacy was the basis of how this country was formed. It doesn't mean that we're not a great country. It doesn't mean that we currently are all bigots. It means this is the truth about how our country was formed. And we can either deal with it realistically and as the truth, or we can keep trying to deny it. And in terms of keep trying to deny the nature of our true history, I feel like just saying, how's that working out for us? I'm now going to show you in the words of the people who built the country how important white supremacy was. 
important as the soul is to the body, and without it, no house can gain a proper stability. And you're like, Jeff, that's 1784, a long time ago. Bear with me. Forty of the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence owned other human beings. The founding fathers of America had absolutely, positively, no problem with white supremacy. They believed in it. It was the truth. It was the reality of their time. And they weren't embarrassed to say it. One of the main reasons that Native Americans were driven off their ancestral land, the plantation owners had to have room. If you're going to grow cotton and tobacco, you need a lot of land. 13% of the entire American population was enslaved by 1860. Can I see a show of hands? How many people understood that slavery was that pervasive? And maybe some, and that's good, but you know what? I guarantee if you knew that, you didn't learn it in high school, and you didn't learn it in college. You learned that somewhere else. This is not taught to us. To understand the economic dependency on slavery. And so when I talk about the monuments and the Civil War and the things that are behind this, one of the other things I would just encourage you to do, like any other investigation that you would do, follow the money to understand what the motivation is. Just follow the money. The Indian Removal Act of 1830 took 100,000 adults and sent them on our version of the Long March. What this did to the Choctaw Indians in the southeast was horrendous. Let's talk about Andrew Jackson, who was the architect of the Indian Removal Act. Once again, we talk about rewriting history. You can't diss Andrew Jackson. He's on the $20 bill. But here's what our President of the United States has said about Andrew Jackson. And I'm going to read this. Had Andrew Jackson been a little bit later, you wouldn't have had the Civil War. He was a very tough person, but he had a big heart. And he was really angry that he saw what was happening with regard to the Civil War. He said, there's no reason for this. The problem with it is, the first problem, that Andrew Jackson was dead 16 years before the Civil War started. And I know it is. It's like, are you kidding me? But it's like as funny as a heart attack. Because there are people who believe this. And this is part, you're saying like, oh, that's ridiculous. Nobody believes that. If you think that who controls the past is not important, you are wrong. Think about the, the arguments that we're having in this country today, and it's because the past has been concealed. This is one of the most amazing books you will ever see, written in 1839, slavery as it is. And the only thing these people did was to go to newspapers, cut out articles about slavery, and put them in a book. That's why they called it slavery as it is. And so I want to show you the real Andrew Jackson. Because he had a slave that ran away, and he wasn't having that. So he put an ad in the newspaper, stop the runaway, and he offered a $50 reward. That's not what I want to talk to you about. 
It's the end of this newspaper advertisement put in by Andrew Jackson near Nashville, state of Tennessee. And this is what it says. If you find that slave, $10 extra for every hundred lashes any person will give him to the amount of 300. This is years before the Civil War. Everyone knew that this is what slavery was about. There weren't any questions about it. Texas school officials are saying we want our children to learn that slavery was a side issue to the Civil War because it's divisive. We have to look forward. But if you are looking forward from a place that is false, then where you're looking forward to is the road to hell. We can't go forward without acknowledging where we have been. What these people have forgotten is the story of King Cotton. And that's something that I will never forget. King Cotton was part of my upbringing in Memphis, Tennessee. King Cotton was a food brand. King Cotton was on everything. There was actually a hotel King Cotton in Memphis. But what does the phrase King Cotton mean? What it meant to me was bacon. Because King Cotton bacon, King Cotton sausage, King Cotton like rolls. This was, this was like the food of my childhood. Everybody in Memphis bought King Cotton brand. And when I finally found out what the name actually stood for, I felt like I wanted to throw up. Because King Cotton, the theory that was used by Southerners before the Civil War to say, we can do this. We can break away from the North and it's economically feasible. And here's why. Everybody depends on our cotton. We can shut down the mills in the North in a heartbeat. Britain and France are going to have to make a decision. Will they support us militarily? Because we can cut down their mills. We just won't send them our cotton. It couldn't have been more practically and beautifully stated by Senator Henry Hammond of South Carolina. Without firing a gun, without drawing a sword, should they make war on us, we could bring the whole world to our feet. What would happen if no cotton was furnished for three years? England would topple headlong and carry the whole civilized world with her, save the South. No, you dare not make war on cotton. No power on earth dares to make war upon it because cotton is king. Follow the money. What kind of money are we talking about? 1840, cotton made 59% of all U.S. exports. This is 16, 15 years before the Civil War. 1.5 million pounds with about 700,000 slaves. And you can see how that changed. 2.25 billion pounds and almost 4 million slaves. This is what made America wealthy. This was the formation of wealth. And folks, I just want to make sure as a side note to say, I hope you don't think that the money made from slavery just dissolved and went up into the air. It went into companies 
and businesses and not even tracing and blaming those corporations. Those corporations hired people and paid their salaries and their benefits and gave them the ability to raise families and to pass wealth on through the generations. This money is what made America financially stable. The market value of slaves in 1860 was greater than the market value of every railroad, factory, and bank combined. Follow the money, because the money we're talking about was huge. Think about the role of slaves and slave labor in the economy. The Mississippi Valley today is one of the poorest places in America. And in 1860, more millionaires per capita than any other place in the country. And that was because of slavery. The white plantation owners did not have the capital to hire hundreds of workers to work these gigantic cotton plantations. They had to have free labor. The mayor of New York City recommended that New York, not the state, the city, withdraw from the Union during the Civil War. Why was that? If you go and read, it's because we are making so much money from slavery, we want to keep doing it. If we withdraw, we can then be friends with the North, then we can be friends with the South. They are saying it to you as plainly and as directly as they can. And so the people today who say the folks honored in these monuments were not fighting for slavery, my response is I understand that that's what you want to believe. And I understand how difficult it is to wrap your mind around the fact that human beings, fellow Americans, would fight, kill other people, and die to preserve slavery. It's really hard to wrap your mind around that. But that is the ugly truth. I was raised to understand that Abraham Lincoln was my savior. I was taught that Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves because he knew that slavery was an abomination. Abraham Lincoln said on many occasions, if I could preserve the union and keep slavery, I'd do it. If getting rid of slavery is what it takes to preserve the union, I'll do that too. What his goal was, was to preserve the Union. And I just want you to know that the debate about reparations for slavery is a completely false debate. First of all, go back to 1988 when Ronald Reagan was in office. Passed with almost no dissent was a bill giving $20,000 to every Japanese American family that was in turn. That was absolutely appropriate. $20,000 doesn't even begin to compensate those families for what was taken from them, for what they lost, and for being essentially imprisoned for the term of World War II. At least it was some acknowledgement that what we did was wrong. If you talk about reparations for slavery, $20,000 for four years of internment, what is it for 256 years of slavery? And here is the kicker. Reparations were already paid because in the Emancipation Proclamation, Lincoln set aside $1 million 
for D.C. slave owners to be compensated for loss of property. This is our history. In the middle of the Civil War, the government still was, was doing what white supremacy demands, which is favoring the white class over everyone else. And I'll give you a perspective on this that's interesting. At the very same time that America refused to give the Negro any land, through an act of Congress, our government was giving away millions of acres of land in the West and the Midwest, which meant that it was willing to undergird its white peasants from Europe with an economic floor. But not only did they give the land, they built land-grant colleges with government money to teach them how to farm. Not only that, they provided county agents to further their expertise in farming. Not only that, they provided low interest rates in order that they could mechanize their farms. Not only that, today many of these people are receiving millions of dollars in federal subsidies not to farm. They are the very people telling the black man that he ought to lift himself by his own bootstraps. And this is what we are faced with. And this is a reality. Now, when we come to Washington in this campaign, we are coming to get our check. This is not the Martin Luther King that they pull out on MLK Day <laughs> or for Black History Month. You're listening to Jeffrey Robinson on the South, Slavery and the Lost Cause. This is Independent Alternative Radio. Stay tuned at the end to learn how you can get CDs, MP3s, PDFs of this program, and our special book offer of Angela Davis's classic collection of essays, Freedom is a Constant Struggle. Our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Give us a call at one 800 444 Seven, seven. So, what was the Civil War and the Confederate flag really about? If you, one of the things you can read about is a phrase called the lost cause. And that's a suggestion that it wasn't really slavery, it was states' rights. Did we hear that from Ronald Reagan's advisors? That's what it was all about. And I have no complaint with that. It was about states' rights. It was about the right to own other human beings as slaves. It was about culture. And the culture was white supremacy. It was about those things that the people who say the monuments should stay up. It's just that their history is causing them to see heritage and culture in a way that is completely false. So I have an idea. If you want to know why the southern states left the Union and why they started the Civil War, why don't you just ask them? Mississippi, our position is thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery, the greatest material interest of the world. A blow at slavery is a blow at commerce and civilization. Louisiana, the people of the slaveholding states are bound together by the same necessity and determination 
to preserve African slavery. Alabama declared that the election of Lincoln cannot be regarded otherwise than a solemn declaration on the part of a great majority of the northern people of hostility to the South, her property and her institutions. Her property were the human beings that they owned, and the institution was the institution of white supremacy and slavery. They are telling you as plainly as they can, and my question is, why are we so unwilling to listen? This is my favorite. All white men are and of right ought to be entitled to equal civil and political rights, that the servitude of the African race as it existing in the states is mutually beneficial to both bond and free and is abundantly authorized and justified by the experience of mankind and the revealed will of the Almighty Creator. Do you think that they stopped believing this because the war was over? They are telling you as clearly as they can at the South And with our people, of course, slavery is the element of all value. And the destruction of that destroys all that is property. This is why we are willing to send our fathers and brothers and sons to make war on the North to try and separate our country. Because if we don't, you're taking away our very lifeblood. We need these slaves, and we are comfortable with it, and we thought you were too. The Confederate battle flag, and if you want to go to the person who would have the best read on what the flag meant, how about the person who created the flag? And what he had to say was, as a people, we are fighting to maintain the heaven-ordained supremacy of the white man over the inferior or colored race. If we ain't fighting to keep slavery, then what the hell are we fighting for? There is no question about what the Civil War was about. And there is no question about the monuments to that war. Because every person that is lionized in those monuments may have been brave, they may have been strong, they may have done incredible acts of courage on the battlefield, they killed other people, and maybe they gave their own lives, and they did it so that they could own other human beings like chattel. Why isn't there a statue of Heinrich Himmler in Germany? Why isn't there a statue of a Nazi soldier in Germany just saying, hey, he was just fighting for his country? They have figured out something that we haven't. And one of the reasons is they have dealt honestly with their past. So, these monuments... This publication is put out by the Southern Poverty Law Center. I would encourage you to get it. You can get it online. It has amazing information about the monuments that have been erected in America and where they are and when they were put up. And here are some facts that come from their study. About 1,503 monuments, and they're still counting. They haven't gotten them all. 
109 public schools, 80 counties, 9 official Confederate holidays, and 10 United States military bases. Can you imagine that at a United States of America military base housing U.S. soldiers that is named for a person whose glory came from being a traitor to the United States and killing U.S. soldiers? And so if we are asking the question, why were these monuments built? One of the things that we want as we're thinking about the answer is, well, where were they built? Were they built in the north? Were they built in the west? Why were they only built in the south? And then we have this question. When were these monuments built? There were two spikes between the end of the 1800s and about 1921 and then essentially during the Civil Rights Movement. These monuments weren't built right after the Civil War. These monuments weren't built by people who were directly related to and lived with the people that died in the war. These monuments were built by folks who never knew the men that they were lionizing. You see there, and you won't be able to see the date, but it's 1896. That's Plessy versus Ferguson. When I talk about how white supremacy is so ingrained in American culture that we don't even recognize it anymore. Plessy versus Ferguson was more than 30 years after the Civil War. And I told you the South may have lost the war, but they won the peace. Plessy versus Ferguson said the concept of white supremacy, it is the law of the United States handed down by the highest court in the land. There is no other way to think about separate but equal. We weren't good enough to be in the same places as the white folks were. And you'll see later that Thurgood Marshall, when he argued Brown versus the board in front of the U.S. Supreme Court, part of his argument was this. Separate versus equal was a concept that was derived to try and keep former slaves as close to that state as was humanly possible. Plessy versus Ferguson, the law of the United States, a seven to one decision. When the terrorist shooting in Orlando happened, I was horrified by that carnage. I don't really have the adjectives to try and describe what people who were victimized there must have felt. But I have to tell you that I started getting angry when I heard them describe it as the largest mass terrorist shooting in American history. Now, if you hear news reports about it today, most of them have been modified. And what they say is it's the largest mass shooting by one person in American history. Because what came to mind for me were these. Can I see a show of hands? Who was taught about any of this in high school. I see one hand in this entire studio. How about in college? Couple more, grad school. Why weren't we taught this? Why don't we know this? Mob kills many Negroes. Dead in Saint East St. Louis may reach 250. Homes were set on fire and white people simply stood outside with rifles and picked black folks off as they came out of their homes. And I have shown this in a number of speeches I have given around the country, and it wasn't until maybe a couple months ago that I talk about hiding in plain sight. I never even saw this until somebody pointed it out to me. 
The first bale of new cotton crop was sold at auction for $1,500 on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. 1917, and cotton was still king in the South. And I'll just say quickly, the reason for that was that slavery, as it was practiced during the Civil War, continued for decades after the Civil War. Blacks were simply arrested for crimes like vagrancy, put into jail, rented out to the very same plantations where they were slaves, and this time their work was compensated, not by paying them, but by paying the municipality that imprisoned them in the first place, because the plantation owners still needed free or nearly free labor. That practice went on until the 1940s. This is the Arkansas shootout. And as a kid growing up in Memphis, I can remember, both of my parents were born in 1926. So they were actually born after this happened. But I remember conversations with my parents and their friends where they would talk about the thing that happened in Arkansas. And it wasn't until I was much older that I finally found out what it was. And I said, you know, Mommy, Daddy, why, why wouldn't you tell us? Why did you refer to it that way? And of course, their view was, we didn't want to scare you. The thing that happened in Arkansas was that a whole bunch of black folks got together in a church to talk about trying to unionize. And when you have a large group of black people together, you could get whipped for gathering in a group. Well, the white police responded. Everybody had guns. Two police officers ended up getting killed. And this was from the newspaper just about seven days later. The trouble at Hoopspur and Elaine, those are towns in Arkansas, has been settled. The soldiers here to preserve order will now return to Little Rock within a short time. No innocent Negro has been arrested. And those of you who are at home and at work have no occasion to worry. Just remain at work just as if nothing had happened. Stop talking, stay at home, go to work, don't worry. By October 31st, 122 people had been charged with crimes. By November 5th, the first 12 had been tried, convicted, and sentenced to death. And the white newspapers will tell you that nearly 250 people died in Arkansas. The black newspapers will tell you it was more like 800 because many of the bodies were simply pushed into the Mississippi River and so they weren't recovered. And finally, 1921. The black community in Tulsa, Oklahoma was one of the most prosperous communities in America and the whites there decided they weren't going to have it. So they simply burned it to the ground. Almost 300 people killed. That's what was going on at the exact same time was this explosion of Confederate monuments, an explosion of thanks and praise for people who had done nothing other than fight to maintain white supremacy and slavery. When you think about when these monuments were built and what else was going on in America, it tells you something about the motivation. One thing that people forget about our history is that Reconstruction was actually working. There were over 2,000 black elected officials in America. 
Businesses that blacks were starting were starting to take hold. And in 1877, I think it was Grover, it may, I can't remember the president, but he got elected and basically said, I'm withdrawing the troops. In 1876, there were 125,000 black registered voters in Louisiana. In 1878, that number dropped to 5,000. And if you're wondering about the flag, it had essentially been dead and buried until 1948 when Strom Thurmond brought it back with the Dixiecrat Party. And once again, they are telling us as clearly as they can what they are about and why they're waving that flag. The party's purpose was clear. We stand for segregation of the races. Folks, they are saying it as plainly as they can. And yet, we are still having a debate in this country about what this stuff means. So Brown versus the board in 54, and I told you about Thurgood Marshall's argument to the U.S. Supreme Court. And of course, when we think about the legacy of white supremacy, we recognize that public schools in America are more segregated today than they were in 1954. That's not by mistake. That's not by accident. Understand that this is now 89 years after the Civil War. And this is the first time that the law in America, I'm not talking about the society and the social acceptance, but 89 years after the Civil War, it is the first time that the law in America says black folks are human enough that they can sit in the same classroom with us. What does that tell you about how deeply ingrained white supremacy has been in America. Our history is being stolen from us. Historical black universities and colleges, pioneers of school choice. Living proof that when more options are provided to students, they are afforded greater access and greater quality. And now the president is saying we're going to have to stop federal funding to these schools because that would be racist. This is the tactic that was used by the South to rewrite history about what the Civil War meant. The reason they are doing it now is because it has worked in the past and it will continue to work unless we're going to do something about it. This is a document that was published in Montgomery, Alabama after the Montgomery bus boycott. This document was prepared by the Montgomery Approvement Association and it was sent out in the black community the night before, the Sunday night before the buses were going to be desegregated on Monday morning. This is a victory document. We have won this struggle. And I just want you to see how many black Americans understand that there is a difference between the law and living. The bus driver is in charge of the bus and has been instructed to obey the law. Assume that he will cooperate in helping you occupy any vacant seat. Do not deliberately sit by a white person unless there is no other seat. In case of an incident, talk as little as possible, 
always in a quiet tone because you know what will happen if you piss off the white folks. Don't get up from your seat. If another person is being molested, do not arise to go to his defense, but pray for the oppressor and use moral and spiritual force to carry on the struggle for justice. And whatever you may think about this advice, this advice is coming from people who were living then. And what they understood is, yeah, the law says I can do this, but if I get hauled off that bus, the law is a long way between the bus and the jail overnight and the courthouse the next morning. And there are all kinds of things that can happen between getting arrested and maybe showing up in court. And this is the one that breaks my heart. If you feel you cannot take it, just walk for another week or two. This is the victory document after the Montgomery bus boycott. It is showing you that despite a change in the law, we recognized that white supremacy hadn't gone anywhere. These are law-abiding, God-fearing, good Americans who are saying we are not bigots, we are not racist, we just don't want the black people in our communities. And remember, I am going through this to try and show you the events that were happening at the same time that this second explosion of monuments in the South to Confederate heroes was being built. And then this happened in 70, in 63. Segregation today, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. And just a few weeks later, the Confederate flag was flying over the University of Alabama. And in September of 1963, these four girls got blown up in this church. And if you want to see the faces of people who have directly experienced terrorism, you don't have to go to the 9-11 photographs. You don't have to go to the first World Trade Center bombing. You don't have to go to Oklahoma City. These are the faces of people watching the bodies being taken out of the church. And these faces know what terrorism is. When Ronald Reagan was nominated for President of the United States, the first campaign speech that he made was in Philadelphia, Mississippi. And it was about states' rights. And I guarantee you, the people in Philadelphia and Mississippi knew exactly what he was talking about. And I'd just like you to consider this. This is Dr. King in 1955. We must love our enemies, be good to them. This is what we must live by and we must meet hate with love. We must love our white brothers no matter what they do to us. This is Dr. King in 1967. Urban riots are a special form of violence. They are not insurrections. The rioters are not seeking to seize territory or attain control of institutions. They are mainly intended to shock the white community. Most of all, alienated from society and knowing society cherishes property above people, the rioters are shocking it by abusing property rights. That's not a speech that is brought out in Martin Luther King week either. 
I promise you, the walls that we build between each other, based on race, based on wealth, they're not high enough to keep the tide back. I'm not talking about violent revolution or anything like that, although that certainly is a possibility, a remote one, I think. What I'm talking about is an America where you don't have 2.3 million people in prison. You got 4.5 million people in prison. You have 90% of Americans owning about 2% of the wealth. Nobody is going to want to live in that America. Taking down these monuments will not cure the problem, but it is at least an indication that we are ready to deal with the truth so that we can move toward making America deal with a naked lunch moment about race in this country. Because by dealing with that, by taking control of the true past, we actually have a chance for a radically different future. Thank you, guys. That was Jeffrey Robinson on the South Slavery and the Lost Cause. He spoke in Seattle in 2017. Jeffrey Robinson is a deputy legal director and the director of the ACLU Trone Center for Justice and Equality. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and in our 35th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs of today's program, Jeffrey Robinson on the South, Slavery and the Lost Cause, and for our special book offer, Angela Davis's classic collection of essays, Freedom is a Constant Struggle, just give us a call at 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. We're offering printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program at no charge. Just call us at 1-800-444-1977. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. We go out with John Coltrane, Alabama. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
Well, just go to the website, alternativeradio.org, alternativeradio.org. We, too, are independent and are supported solely by listeners who make donations, uh, purchase transcripts, MP3s, or CDs of our programs. So we're very much uh, dependent on listeners out there. Ladies and gentlemen, 